off with, and then we'll we'll all sort of dive in. Some of us will occasionally ask questions. I'll try yeah. not to look at that so I won't be self-conscious. You'll forget it eventually. Yeah, the, okay, it's all there. The, all okay. the interviewees, they always forget it there a couple minutes in. So before before we get started, um, uh, I just want to make sure that you know our names. Um, yeah, I'd like to know sure. who you are. I'm, I'm Rachel Brown. I spoke with you on the yes. phone yesterday. Um, and this is Abby. Abby. And Nick. Hi, nice to meet you. And last but not least is oh, Joe. Oh, you're Nick. I'm you're Nick. Joe. 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 Oh, that's a little easy. I could remember. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been, uh, I've, I've been interviewing with the Michael and yep. uh, for the story class program for a couple years. And um, these guys are here for the summer workshop. So. Yeah, I wondered why you all were here for the college being over. But anyway. So if we could uh, start off by just having you say your name and, and where we are. Uh, Mary Wood, my name is Mary Wood. I am living in Chestertown, Maryland, in my own house on Kent Street and Philosopher's Terrace. And it's, what, June 4th, mm -hmm. 2015. Okay. So when and where were you born? I can't hear you. When and where were you born? I was born in Philadelphia on December 8th, 1918. So what was your childhood like? You'll have to speak What was up. your childhood like? Just a plain childhood, <laughs> I don't know. Um, we lived in the suburbs and just went to school and, you know, whatever. Nothing glamorous. What did you do when you graduated high school? Well, that then it gets complicated. My family moved from uh, Philadelphia to western uh, part of Virginia, Clark County, Virginia, in 1932. And we went to a one-room school there, a private school. And it was uh, fo the fox hunting country, which I think, if you read this book, you find out about that. And uh, I was there for a year. And then I went to uh, school in Warrington, Virginia, which interestingly enough, well, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so I was there for two years. But because of this transition, the boarding school didn't count that year that I spent in the one-room school, so they put me back a year. And I didn't, I was 18, and I wasn't going to stay in school another year just to get a high school diploma. So I left. So I never did get a high school diploma. And so then I lived in New York for several years. I went dancing around to the music that we heard last night at the Swing concert, oh. that 1930s big band kind of music. You so I spent a few years palm trotting, is that the right word? You were a dancer? Hmm? You were a dancer? No, I just went to dances at people's, you know, mm -hmm. colleges and things. 
we called it prong trotting. And anyway, so then after that got out of my system, I went to uh, live with two friends in New York in Greenwich Village, where else? And I went to uh, Barnard and took, uh, not, not for courses, just, I mean, took courses there, but not as an undergraduate student. And then the war, I guess, was came on or was coming along, and uh, I'm trying to think. I can't remember exactly. In the meantime, I can't. Anyway. Let's see, after I left New York. Well, I guess the war was on. So I'll tell you how I want to talk about it. Um, before the war, on the home front, uh, when, I was, when I was at home during vacations and things, my parents were always listening to the news about what was going on in Europe. And there was this terrible news reporter called H.V. Kaltenborn. He had the worst voice you ever heard, sort of a simpering kind of voice. And being the normal teenager, I couldn't stand it. So I would leave and ignore all that part. And then, oh, now I do remember. So anyway, the war kept coming nearer and nearer. And I went to a dance, where else? This was in Virginia, and it was a great party, and they had a band out from Washington, and there was a tent on the lawn, and, uh, and this my date drove me home at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> the uh, our our driveway went up like that, and the, our house was here on this hill. And there were steps going up to the house, and I saw my father sitting, this guy, sitting on the steps. And I thought, oh, he's waiting. He's going to chew me out for staying out so late. And we, this is, anyway, we, I w said goodnight to the guy and started up the steps, hoping my father wouldn't notice me. He was crying. And he said, the Nazis have invaded Poland. So that's when the war started. Do you remember where you were when Pearl Harbor happened? Yeah, so well, that was quite a lot later, of course. Yeah, I was in, by then I was married and in Denton, Maryland. So after that, you know, you had to get serious. So uh, I went to Washington, my mother, you, know, you saw all about her getting her job in, at the national headquarters of the Red Cross in, in Washington, and she got me a job as an unpaid nutrition worker. And you saw that picture of me with all the cans of food and stuff. But I also had to write a paper about how to manage on uh, wartime rationing food. 
I didn't know anything about, I mean, I could barely boil water, so here I was writing this newsletter. And uh, anyway, then you saw the pictures of me that are in here, of driving around in a wagon to the various anti-aircraft sites around the District of Columbia, uh, bringing coffee and donuts and flirting with the soldiers. And we wore those Red Cross uniforms you saw. And, uh, and, and it was, I have to say, it was very fun to be in Washington during those years. Fun, fun how? Was there? Well, there I was, a single girl. Guys were always coming through town uh, on assignment before they, and they'd call me up and we'd go out. And there was this one guy who was working in Washington, as a matter of fact, in the, uh, the agency that decided on what should be rationed and what shouldn't be rationed. I had a name that I don't remember. And he wanted to, I guess his draft number or something came up, and he wanted to join the Marines. So he'd been taking me out and going to, he, he loved jazz, little jazz clubs. And then he enlisted in the Marines, and the next time I saw him, he was in his Marine uniform. So it was just about this time of year, and we went for a walk around the tidal basin. The cherry trees were all out. And every time he saw another man in uniform coming toward us, he couldn't remember who saluted whom first and which hand you used. So we would turn around and go back. <laughs> he eventually learned how to do it. But it was the first day he'd ever had his uniform on. So anyway, then I got married, not to that guy. And uh, we moved to Centerville. I was married in 1942. How did you meet your husband? Oh, I met him years before in Maine. Uh, that's a long story. That has nothing to, <laughs> nothing to do with the war. Uh, anyway, he was phys he was what they called four F. He was physically unfit to be a soldier, and all his friends he he had graduated from college and law school, Harvard, if you're going to ask me. Yeah. And uh, somehow uh, he was home, by home, I mean outside of Centerville on this family farm. And uh, somebody or somehow said it was a, your patriotic duty to raise chickens. Mm. So he built this broiler house and we started into the business of raising broiler chickens. And we'd go to the post office, and they came in the mail in boxes about half the size of the middle part of this table. And you'd get them out of the post office, little day-old chicks. They looked like ping-pong balls, but they had <laughs> yellow feathers, and they were cute. And they could beep, 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 and you could hear them through the... Uh, in the box in the post office. And so 
by that time, we were living in Denton, which is in Caroline County, and uh, my husband had been asked to teach. Let's see, was this post? This was before. I can't remember. Anyway, my husband had been asked to teach school in the public school, high school in Denton, although he wasn't a teacher at all, but at least they figured if he had two, two degrees, he must have known how to read and write at least. So uh, he taught school there and we lived there. So, oh, that's right, I'd forgotten this. So one day he said to me, this new bride and this new house, well, I've got to go get the chickens. This is before this boiler house business. And so we went to the post office, which I didn't know anything about, and got this box of chickens. And this was quite a big house for us. We were living on the downstairs floor, but there were several rooms upstairs. So my husband had said, well, I'm going to build a chicken pen outside for them. But he never got around to it. So we put the box of chickens upstairs, right to the right of the stairs. There were, the bathroom was here, and the, there was an empty room here, and two or three empty rooms down that way, all upstairs. And... Uh, the chickens got too big to stay in this box. So we took all the newspapers in the house and sprinkled them on the floor of this room that they were in upstairs. And we got a feeder and water for them. And they got bigger and bigger and more and more unattractive <laughs> and, and louder and louder. And, and one day the landlady called up and said that some people wanted to look at the house. They were thinking of buying it. My husband was in school. I was alone. And he said, I'm going to bring them over right now. So I nearly went into a panic. I did go into a panic and turned on the radio as loud as I could and showed them all over the downstairs, every detail. I said, look at that little something there. And then they said, well, we want to see the upstairs. So I ran ahead of them, and I said, here's the bathroom. It was the dreariest bathroom you ever saw. Isn't it wonderful? And, I, and then, as I said, the bathroom was here. The chickens were here in the next room. And then there were some other bedrooms. So I got out of the bathroom and stood in front of the chicken door. And I said, and, and now, don't you think these rooms down here are lovely? And the people, I think, either thought I was crazy, which I kind of was, and the house was pretty dreary, so they, they left. So then I said to my husband when he got home from school, get that chicken house built and get those chickens out of there. So that's the end of that part of the story. And then when we got back to the farm, uh, he, his, his term with the school ended. And then when we got back to the farm, 
we did build a broiler house and have uh, uh, you you grow them for 16 or 18 weeks until they're broiler size and and it was what's sorry not the kind of way you want to spend your life raising broiler chickens I don't think what is a broiler chicken well it's not a big roaster and it's not a fryer, it's in between. And it's a good thing to eat. And uh, it's tenderer, I guess, than a great big chicken that you would have like that. It's about that small, like 14, 14 pounds or something. So what would you- 14 weeks. What would you do with them when they were, when they were grown? Would you sell them? Oh yeah, we sold them to farmers or somebody wanted to buy them there. They weren't farmers. I don't know who they were. They were middlemen of some sort. Mm. Anyway, we had buyers, plenty of buyers, because meat was rationed, uh, food was rationed. And uh, the trouble was the price of the broilers was rationed. You couldn't raise it. The price of feed to feed them was not rationed, and it kept going up higher and higher, mm. whereas the broiler price stayed the same. So eventually, the person got broke. But the, the buyers all wanted to sell Howard, my husband, to sell them on the black market. And he felt so patriotic, because he, he felt badly that he wasn't in the war, and uh, he wouldn't do that. So we got out of the chicken business, and by then, his lord, he, he was able to, he had a law degree from Harvard, and he was ready to take the Maryland bar exam, so he took those. You, you mentioned a, a black market. Was there a black market in Chestertown? I guess there was probably a black market everywhere. I mean, you know, you, if you knew how to do it or where it was, you could buy things under the, under the ration price. What kind of other things were um, uh, rationed in Chestertown? Uh, in a moment, I'll tell you. Gas. That's the important thing. And our farm was seven miles out of town. And you had different kinds of gas cards depending on uh, what you did. I mean, if you were a doctor or something, you had plenty of gas. And... Uh, Farmers had some for their machines. Ordinary people driving around had much more limited. So we didn't have, we might have, I don't remember. We. I don't think we had a farmer one because we weren't really farmers. And, uh, but seven miles was an important trip. 14 mile round trip was, was gas that you thought a lot about it. You just didn't go any time you wanted a loaf of bread or something. Uh, and it was a dirt road. We saved fat for reasons that I don't understand. If you were frying something, you saved the fat in a can. And strangely enough, we saved the silver paper from cigarette packs. And of course, in those days, everybody smoked. And what on earth the silver paper was used for, I can't imagine. Cigarettes were rationed. Um, 
so that there'd be plenty of them to send to the soldiers. Uh, so, let's see. Oh, the other interesting thing, well, you asked about D-Day. It's one of your days. Oh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, yeah, I, I was visiting my husband's family. We were lis listening to the Philharmonic on the on the radio, and they broke off the program and announced that uh, this attack had happened, and we were stunned. And that when what was the date of Pearl Harbor? I don't know. December seventh. Well, I knew it was the day before my birthday. I knew that, but what year? 41. Hmm? 41. 41, yeah. That's right. Well, I, we weren't married. I guess we were engaged, and we were visiting his family. And that's when I heard about it. Were uh, you in the Red Cross by then? Or? Uh, my Red Cross days were over by then, because that was all before I was married. Oh, my Red Cross days in Washington, but I stayed connected with the Red Cross when I moved over here to Centerville. And uh, I'll tell you about that later, I guess. Do you remember, you said that you were at your, your fiancé's family's home on, on the day of Pearl Harbor? I was visiting my husband's family outside of Philadelphia. And do you remember, was that night you said you were listening to the radio, was it? After dinner, were you? Do you remember the conversations that happened? Well, I guess it, no, no, I don't. I guess everybody was stunned. And, oh yes, I do. It's it's an awful thing to even tell you. <laughs> now that you're making me remember it, we had an. My in-laws were there, and. My mother-in-law's brother and his wife were there. And he was married to a lady with a very fiery temper. And I can remember her saying, oh, those dirty jobs. Mm -hmm. That was what people said in those days. I was talking to the most charming man last night after the concert. And I looked at the young boy. I looked at the thing around his neck. He was dancing and he was playing the double bass and it said Yokohama, Japan. You know, he had some Japanese name. So we've mended a few bridges. But, you know, they were the horrible, cheating enemy that were killing all our people. So anyway, where am I? Uh, Gas was rationed, fat was rationed, and there was a lot of food. Butter was rationed. And you had to eat margarine, which is a disgusting white thing. <laughs> and it had a little uh, capsule in it of yellow stuff, which you broke, and you squeezed it like that until so, so all the margarine turned yellow. That <laughs> was awful. So. Anyway, what else? Coffee was probably rationed. So my father, in the meantime, I don't know that that's in that book or not, he, he ended up, he was in his 40s by then, 
he for some reason he went over to overseas with the 29th division which was a Maryland and Virginia division and division and of, hmm? division of the national guard or uh, of the army well yes of the army okay. and uh, he had the the national guard had been transferred into the regular army and uh, he ended up, for reasons that I don't ask me to explain, uh, he was the Provo Marshal of London, which is like the big shot policeman of London. Mm -hmm. And they had a, a dispatcher, a reporter called Lee McArdle, for, uh, who was a reporter from the Baltimore Sun, who covered this group of Maryland and Virginia people. And there would write human interest articles about them, and and one of the headlines that came out was, "There shall be no necking in London doorways," mm -hmm. announces Graham Doherty, Colonel Graham Doherty, Provo Marshal, <laughs> and uh, that's just exactly the kind of thing my father would have said. It didn't surprise <laughs> any of us. Anyway, and then another thing he had to do was he had to approve any marriages that uh, GIs, uh, soldiers, if they wanted to marry a girl over there. But in the meantime, I got married and so did my brother when he was overseas. And that also came out in the papers that, that we'd gotten married without his consent. And uh, he had all these other guys. Did you guys go on a honeymoon? Hmm? Did you guys go on a honeymoon? I can't hear you. Did you go on a honeymoon? Well, I'll have to tell you about that in a minute. Okay. You're getting me out of... Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, we did. We to, to go on a honeymoon, my husband at that time was living over here, and I was living in Virginia, which was where our house was 60 miles west of Washington, so it was a long trip. So we had to go on a honeymoon between where I lived and where he was going. We couldn't veer off this line. And luckily, there was a an inn, which was a stately mansion on the Severn River. And we got a room there, and that's where we had our two or three day short, very short honeymoon. And then he had to be back teaching uh, school. I think it was I think it was a Thanksgiving Thanksgiving weekend. Maybe he had an extra day. Anyway, this very table that you're sitting on, and these uncomfortable chairs that you're sitting on, were the very ones that we sat on in Virginia in my family's house when we got married. So isn't that historic? Yeah. <laughs> I love these chairs. They're yeah, great. but they're not comfortable. They're, they're old. I had a dinner party once, and the person was sitting over there. This was many years ago. He just disappeared under the table. It was not from strong drink. It was because the chair just collapsed. <laughs> anyway, so now are we up to... D-Day or not? Uh, well, I had a 
Well, I'm interested also in your brother was in the service too. What year did he enter? Did you correspond with him while he was overseas? I don't think so. I don't think so. He was he was trained in Texas mm -hmm. and came back and got married and he was in the Pacific. He flew 62 missions mm -hmm. there. Wow. And uh, I don't remember corresponding with him. He did come in that last in the last picture there. He's mm -hmm. back with his little baby. The very final picture in here. I think it's the very last one. No. There he is. And is that his wife? That's his wife. One of his three wives. <laughs> she died. No, she didn't die. She's alive. Middle wife. Two, two middle wives that died. Anyway. Is he... Younger or older than He's you? younger. And he's here right now. He has a little house in town on Campus Avenue. We interviewed him last year, actually. Yeah, mm -hmm. he, that's where you interviewed him. Mm -hmm. And so what else? Am I getting too ahead of you? Uh, I don't know. Well, we could ask about D-Day. Oh, yeah, yeah. What? Can you just um, tell us your memories of D-Day and what you knew at the time and what your reactions were? Well, I think I was standing in my kitchen in Denton, and I heard about it on the radio. And uh, you know, you were appalled. It was you were glued to the radio all the time. The only modern analogy I can give you is when they were having the riots in Baltimore. I don't know whether any of you were glued to the television. Well, it's the same thing, only it was the radio. And I do remember the 29th Division was in the second wave, I think. And my father wasn't in it. He was, he had, because of his age, he had been transferred to this uh, Provo Marshal work. And uh, no, it was, you got the sense, I guess they must have had very good reporters. You got the sense of how scary it was and how brave they were. And just to think about it gives me a shiver to this very day. You know, those cliffs they had to climb up with people mm -hmm. shooting at them. Oh, isn't war awful? I mean, what is the point of all these young men going out and shooting each other all the time? Anyway, uh, I, I, I wrote these things down because I wouldn't forget them. Oh, I'll tell you one interesting thing. Uh, so... You asked about whether, have you got any more questions that you want to ask me? Uh, but more toward the end. Hmm? More toward the end, just some wrap up. Uh, okay. Well, I think one of the interesting things were these um, airplane spotting shocks. 
and there was one in Centerville on the way out to Pioneer Point. We were young and had no ch children, so we took a three o'clock in the morning shift. And has anyone else explained to you how they worked? So I don't need to tell you. Well, they might have been doing something different, and the woman well, they had this little shack out in this field. And they had binoculars and a phone and a map and I think a compass and outlines of the different kinds of planes and uh, round the clock and you heard an airplane and you had to figure out which way it was going and then you called up somebody and uh, I can't imagine uh, I, I, and they had one here too, I'm sure. They had one on my family's farm in Virginia, I know that. So I, it seems a very primitive way of guarding against airplanes, doesn't it? Did you, you and your husband both have the 3 a.m. shift? Yeah, mm-hmm. Every, every day or on weekends or? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I think it was like once a week or something. And we rather enjoyed getting out of the house. We'd have dinner in the great town of Centerville and, and uh, get up at 3 a.m. I think it was 3 a.m. And uh, clothes were rationed and shoes were rationed. I wrote all these notes if anybody wants to have them. I mean, it's, I, I just put things down. Yeah, as I remember Definitely. them. When you were out there um, spotting the planes, was there? did you think that there was a significant risk that there would be an attack here on the Eastern Shore? Well, you were, no, I, th I kept thinking it was, I think we were all thinking it was going to be in toward Washington that they would, excuse me, that they would go. So I'm, I'm trying to, Kind of describe it for me. I'm trying to think of being in a tower at, at three in the morning when it's dark. Like, did you did you see the planes or did you hear them? You just you hear them. A, did you have a spotlight at all to? Huh. It was a little shack. It wasn't as tall as this room. It was just a little wooden shack. It must have had some heat in it. And there were old magazines. And people would bring magazines because hours would go by and you had to stay awake couple of chairs and it was a little shabby and uh, uh, you asked about one other red two other Red Cross things in in Centerville a group of women would meet in the parish house of St. Paul's Church and roll bandages mm -hmm. and then they also had a blood mobile that would come around from time to time and people would donate blood. Did you? Did I? Yes. Why did you did you feel you mentioned that your husband, because he was four F, felt you know very patriotic? Did did you have a similar feeling or? Well, everybody did. I think it's not like the war nowadays, where you, unless you know somebody in it, every single person felt that they were helping the war by doing some tiny thing to defeat this disgusting Hitler and what he'd done to the world. Did that bring the community together? 
I think the whole country was together. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't spies and villains hiding about, but but uh, no, people really were together in, in a way that they don't seem to be in this country anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, think what Churchill said about you know, blood, sweat, and tears, and everything. think what the English did with that little tiny island, beating the whole Europe practically. Anyway, so yeah, it, it brought the country together. I think. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe any stories of spies or people who weren't for the uh, war effort in town and how it, how that was handled? I don't really know. I've forgotten that, I guess. I do know that people were worried. There were posters around saying, loose lips sink ships and all those kind of things. And I, I don't really know. No. I never heard of anything in, that, in either of these communities. But then you wouldn't necessarily, too, because I guess if they were spies, they'd keep it. I did give Adam an interesting book, which I don't know whether he shared with you, called uh, We Have Decided or We Have Come Not to Fight. Uh, and it's written by a cousin of mine who, uh, it's about conscientious objectors, and it's very interesting to read that, because these were uh, religious people, Quakers, Mennonites, and Church of the Brethren, mm -hmm. and other people who just felt it was wrong to kill. And uh, they served in many ways, driving ambulances. Some of them went to war in a non-combat way, like driving an ambulance. Uh, some of them worked in outdoor projects, and some of them that helped nature and I don't know what, and some of them worked in mental hospitals and some of them went to prison. But went to prison, why? Because they. I can't. You have to speak up. They went to prison for for what? For well, that was the alternative, for oh, for not fighting. Mm -hmm. See, every man had a draft number. And when your number was called up, you were expected to, if you could pass all the tests, which my husband wasn't able to do, you, uh, you were expected to go into the army in some slot or other where they needed you. And uh, something just went into my mind when I said that. Oh, another thing they had, it had nothing to do with me, but guys I knew were in college at the time, which my husband was, uh, they accelerated the courses. So you you got your four-year, they were called 30-day wonders, those guys that graduated. <laughs> and uh, so your four years were squashed into three years. But anyway, that's... Did you work during the war? Well, I did this unpaid work for the Red Cross, and then when I was home, I was busy 
helping with the lovely broiler <laughs> industry. And then I got pregnant and was busy soon being a mother or so. No, I didn't. I didn't work for pay. How was it raising children during the war? Well, luckily the war was over by the time that they <laughs> were born. But I guess that you probably got extra rations for what you needed for kids, I don't know. I didn't, I don't remember. I, well, there are quite a few people that are my son's age. I don't know. Oh, we did, all right, you, you are reminding me of something. We lived, our farm was on the Queen Anne side of the Chester River, and these friends of ours, you know who Bob Ingersoll, uh, Bill Ingersoll is, the town manager? His mother, right? On that side of the river, they lived on that side of the river. And the another friend was also had a newborn baby. So we, my little baby was first and we wanted to see them. Well, it meant we would have had to drive all the way to Chestertown and then all the way down to the end of Quaker Neck to see them. So it was a nice warm evening and my husband said, well, we'll just go across in the boat. So he was like to sail. So over we went, I guess in a canoe or a rowboat or something, or maybe it was an outboard motor. And they picked us up right where we landed, and we went and saw this other baby. And then a thunderstorm came up. And it was time for Robin, who you saw, I don't know, was he leaving when you came? I, I managed to meet him real quick. I don't know where I think he, I think he left. Okay. He left. Anyway, he, my oldest son, now 71 years old, uh, was just a little baby in a basket. But he was starving because he was on his 6 o'clock bottle or 8 o'clock bottle. He would have starved to death. So... We put him in the basket and put a tarp or something over him and rode back with the rain pouring down. So that was our act about bringing up, taking care of children. And that was not a very, it's a kind of foolish thing you would only do if you were young and, and foolish. I think, unless you have other, any other questions, I can't remember anything else to tell you. Is there anything else that you can remember that you'd like to talk about, or have you covered your major points? I think I've got everything that I can think of. Okay. More than enough, you know, all this stuff anyhow. We want, we want everything you can give us. We want so. everything we have. <laughs> <laughs> did you, we asked you if you uh, wrote to your brother, but... Um, did you write to anybody else at the time? Did you I think I wrote to my father. I think I wrote, you had these little letters called V-mail or something. They were little, very thin paper and you folded them up in a certain way and, and you had to send them to an army post office. You couldn't say, 
so-and-so Paris, France, or wherever they were, because mm -hmm. I guess the spies would have known. Mm -hmm. So they sent them to this army post office. And and if you got a letter back, they didn't say, say where they were, I don't think. I don't ever remember getting one that was censored, although I've seen letters from friends of mine that were, that were blacked out parts of it. Do you still have the letters? No. Uh, no. They weren't. Well, my father's letters to my mother, which consists, this book consists of that. I do have those, and they were, well, that was really, I think it was pretty much after the war, toward the end. I don't know what the dates are on those letters. Whether I even... What did you write in the letters? God knows what... Just some chatter. Maybe I don't have his letters in here. No, I guess what I just put stuff in here that were raw pictures and things I could... No, the letters aren't here. I guess... I don't know whether his letters were... Do you remember the day that the war ended? I remember VE Day very well. That was terribly exciting. I was, I was not in an exciting place. I was in Centerville, which wasn't very exciting to me. It wasn't like those pictures you see in cities, everybody kissing everybody. And then VJ Day, it was kind of an, of course, I do remember the Hiroshima and, and uh, Nagasaki, or the two bombs going off. What the you, horror of that. How did you hear about that? On the radio, maybe? I guess so, yeah. I don't think people had televisions in those days. Was your reaction, were you more relieved or excited? Well, you were terribly glad. Well, of course, the surrender of Japan didn't come until a little while after that. So you didn't know. And it was all kind of horrifying, the idea of this awful thing and the mushroom cloud and all that stuff. The surrender in Japan in a way, I think might have been kind of like an anticlimax. I mean, it was really over. I mean, the war was really over. There was, I, I guess it wasn't if people had been shot afterwards, but the, you knew who was going to win by then. Did your brother come home from the Pacific after the surrender of Japan or before? He was he was before that. He he had done his sixty two missions, and then you're supposed to be allowed to come home. And he he wasn't. He was kept on flying. Oh, he told he probably told you the complications. There was some complication about he was flying in a squadron. 
I'm told just to go out and observe this thing and come back. And the captain of the squadron, I don't know how many planes that means, saw some troop ship or something down there that looked interesting and, and bombed it and turned out to be an American ship, I think. I'm not sure of these details, so don't write them up in headlines. And when they landed, and then my brother was, had been told not to bomb anything but the guy that was leading the group, and he didn't obey the guy that was leading the group. So it kind of broke up this group. And he, he did some individual flying over the hump, I think. What does that mean? Hmm? Over the hump, what does that mean? Well, it's one of those things everybody said. It, it was, oh, don't you all know what it means? It, there was, from, from wherever they were stationed, there was a big mountain or something over into another part of Japan. Is that right? It was like a landmark that they used. Well, I think it was kind of a mountain there. I'd have to get out a book of geography and look at it. Was that a specific mountain, or just any mountain was a hump? No, there there was a certain General Doolittle, I think it was. Was I don't know. You'd have to get out your history books of World War II and study up on that. I don't really know. Did you see your brother when he came home? Well, I saw him. Yeah, I don't remember when. He went and work. He was working in New York. California, Connecticut, you know, he, they, he had four children, I had two children, and you know, your life gets on different paths. Did you have any other friends, you know, the, the friends that you've made in D.C. who were serving overseas? Oh, lots of friends, yeah, sure. What was that like for you, being, being at home and not knowing where they were in the war? Well, it was something that you kind of accepted. My, I had, my uncles were all in it. And all those guys that I would go out with in Washington were all in it, including that Marine who didn't know who to salute. And, and you were, it's just what people were doing. And of course there was a danger of being killed. And I have a friend whose husband was a, a, was a West Point graduate and was a, I don't know what, if you're a West Point graduate, you, you have a fairly high rank when you get out. And he was in some engagement and had his leg shot off right away. So he had to come home and learn how to walk around with the, one, you know, artificial like Read Doonesbury if you really want to know the truth of what things were like. I get all my political information from reading him. Yeah. I just saw my questions. Do you guys have any other questions? Mm -hmm. Go for it. Yeah. I think you asked. Okay. 
Is there any, any one last thought that you want to leave us with? Well, I think it's interesting. I'll be interested. And you can have this stuff, which is just all jumbled, so I wouldn't forget if anybody no, wants to. Oh, we appreciate that. it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for your time. Well, well, thank you for the interest. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let me know what happened. I'm sure we will. Of course, yeah. we'll send her and everyone else a copy of all the information we gather so mm -hmm. you can see what we've been putting together. Sure, after you've, after you've written it up or whatever, I would... Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure to let you know. I think we're planning an exhibit for the fall, and if we are, I'll make sure to okay. send you those details as well. You mentioned you had some photos or... or well, that's what I have. It's all in there. They're not very high quality because they're all Xeroxes, but there it is. It's easier than trying. Oh, this is really good. That was very yeah. detailed. This is very helpful. Thank you. Good. I actually, now that we're, I'm looking at this, I have a whole book written about my father called Twice in a Lifetime. That's the cover right there. And I can put... I could find probably over there the the thing that has the letters. I don't. It tells a little bit about life in in Paris. Well, now that we have the the book on the table, can can you tell us some of the the stories behind some of the pictures that are in there? Did you guys have any pictures in particular that you remember? I really like the one with uh, you serving the marine, but you explained that a little bit already. <laughs> you seem to like to flirt, maybe. There you go. See, you asked me what I thought. So people gave me these when they knew that I was writing, getting this together. So, so when you were serving the marines, was that, did you like doing that? Was it sort of a patriotic service to... This this lovely guy. Yeah, yeah, that's mm -hmm. We used to go. Well, he was one of the ones that we uh, went around and saw. I don't know what his name was, but you know they were glad to see us. We were glad to see them. We had a little chat and. Where were they? Were they stationed, stationed around in various places around Washington okay. to protect the city? And. I don't think they ever had to fire a gun in anger. Nowadays, they probably would. Mm. But I don't think they ever shot those guns from there. Who took that picture? Do you remember? Uh, I don't know. Some Red Cross publicity person, I guess. Mm. Saw, the, saw the lovely looking woman on the front and said, <laughs> oh, we got to use this photo. <laughs> No, I think they had it. There's one modeling the uniform. There's a picture with you and your mom um, in the Red Cross. At a meeting, yeah. yeah. So did you, you guys work together? Well, she was a big shot, and if I wanted to see her or have lunch with her, I had to make an appointment. Oh. Uh, Is she why you joined the Red Cross? Well, she got me... You know, she old school girl network. She got me in. Interestingly enough, as far as my mother is concerned, and this, and this red crow. There we are. I don't know. 
I don't know what that... Mother's boss in the Red Cross was a woman called Mrs. Dwight Davis. And Mrs. Dwight Davis's husband was the man who gave the Davis Cup for the Davis Cup tennis matches. And she and mother, I don't know how many years before, worked to repeal the 18th Amendment, which was the Prohibition Amendment. And Mrs. Davis's name was different than she was Mrs. Sabin or Sabine or something. And she got a group of her chums, I think from boarding school, and they uh, formed this Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform campaign to uh, uh, have the 18th Amendment repealed. Whether that was a good thing or not, I don't know. <laughs> but at least if you're over 21, you can buy a drink nowadays. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Okay, the thanks for coming. Can we get a photo of you guys? Photo? <laughs> sure. Great. Can, can I stay sitting yes, down? Yes, sit down.